This episode of On the Beat is brought to you by Ingles. Shop online with Ingles curbside pickup. New curbside stores opening every week. Please welcome Mike Griffith. Well, hey, everybody. Mike Griffith here. Welcome to tonight's Ingles on the Beat. And as always, plenty to talk about on a Monday. Uh, Georgia football just keeps knocking out the recruits. Kirby Smart continuing to build on his championship program. We're going to talk about that. Obviously, uh, also going to talk some baseball. And we're going to start right there because tonight I have a really special guest. I have Georgia baseball coach Scott Strickland coming on. And uh, coach, welcome to the program. Thanks for making time for us tonight. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, Mike. Thanks for having me. I got to tell you, folks, um, you know, Georgia baseball is something uh, my four years that's really grown on me. And I think any of you that have been to Foley Field and and watched the Bulldogs there at the at the SEC's version of Wrigley Field, as we like to call it, a little bit smaller and, uh, you know, certainly an intimate setting. uh, The way Coach Strickland's players carry themselves, the way they compete, I think I think everybody really likes it. And then if you've uh, if you've heard Coach Strickland before. Uh, you understand uh, just how much uh, charisma he has and uh, why he's such a well-liked coach. But I got to tell you, coach, you have had some snake bit injuries since I've covered the program. I look at Georgia baseball and I'll tell you, there have been some times when I was up in Knoxville and I watched the way you guys boxed in Tennessee and put eight runs on their 104 mile an hour pitcher and knock their all-time saves leader off the mound on a Sunday in front of a jam-packed crowd against a program that had only lost, I think, one or two games at home all year. I thought to myself, and I know you see it too, this program has a ceiling that could really take Georgia baseball far. And so I guess I just want to start with that. And uh, you've been coaching the program nine years, and I guess let's just start talking about this year's team and what you saw, because this was a team that really jumped up in the rankings in the first half of the year. Yeah, no, we certainly had a lot of depth, we felt like, when the season started. But within two weeks, we had lost Dylan Ross and Will Childers, our number two and number three guys. And you know, basically, it's one-third of our innings just gone right off the bat. And you know, I thought our kids responded really, really well and just, just really bonded together and, and fought through it. We pieced some games together. And uh, I, I thought we had a nice year. Uh, no one wants nice. We all want great. Uh, we got to the postseason, but we want more than that. But uh, I thought our kids really battled hard and really fought through some of that adversity. I, I thought they did, too. And, and I'll tell you, there was some real gut punches along the way, um, not just the pitching injuries. I, I want to start. Well, I do want to ask about one more pitching injury. Jonathan Cannon is a guy that was essentially unbeatable uh, through the first half of the SEC. In fact, I think he was 6-0 and uh, in his SEC starts. And then he had a little bit of an injury and he came back, cleared to play, is it fair to say not the same pitcher? And, and what what was the situation? I know pitchers, they're so fine-tuned. They kind of remind me of those sprinters in track, man. If, if they're a little bit off, they can get a lot off. And Jonathan was such an incredible precision pitcher that just – he didn't walk anybody. He was unbelievable. Uh, but when he came back, didn't look like he had the same efficiency. What was the issue when Jonathan came back on the injury? Well, you know, anytime that uh, a pitcher goes through an injury and, and he injured his forearm doing a push-up, he was doing a warm-up to get ready to throw a bullpen. We're at Clemson, and he was just doing his normal warm-up routine to get ready to throw, and he felt a little twinge uh, in the top of his forearm. and the back of the forearm, so it was a good area. We weren't concerned long-term, but we, we you know, we missed two starts, and uh, he had to get himself going again. And I'll be honest with you, John's one of those guys that he works so hard, he takes so much pride in what he does. I think it might have just been a case of him trying too hard. He was trying mm-hmm. to carry us and trying to do too much. And, and you know, the, the velocity got back. He was up 95 to 96 in his last two starts. But you're right, the command wasn't exactly how it was uh, before. But uh, he was awfully, awfully good for us. And, and we're not in the postseason without him. And, and uh, you know, our, our team really, really fed off him. And, yeah, he didn't, he didn't finish like he started, but, man, he had a great year. He was an All-American, All-SEC guy, and just really proud of the season that he had. No doubt. You had different guys step up. I mean, and that went over Tennessee. That's your, that was your number three pitcher, and you kind of pieced it together. And, again, I mean, this, is, this team is so much fun to watch, and the people that have watched that are watching the show right now, they know what I'm talking about. They understand uh, how much fun it is to watch George baseball. And, and your guys do have a, a certain attitude, coach, a certain way. 
um, that they that they represent. And I guess I would ask you, how do you how do you mix that? Baseball is a little bit different sport because as you explained to me at Tennessee, uh, you kind of got on them uh, on a Saturday night, and and you said that's kind of dicey. You, you know, you you can't just wear these guys out and be firing brimstone all the time because it is an enemy. You're all in the dugout. You're all shoulder to shoulder. You're all traveling together on the bus. I mean, it's it's not a deal where the coach. I don't think it's a deal where the players can't like the coach. I think they gotta like their coach, respect their coach. But there's an art to getting them to respond to the coach, and you really, I, I really saw you do that time and time again this year. I would ask you about that in all your years coaching. I mean, is that a, is it a gut feel? Is it every team a little different? How are you able to get your kids to respond the, the way you, you do every time it looks like George is down? Uh, you seem like you push a button and you're able to get them to respond quickly. Well, I do think every team is different. You know, your leadership's going to be different. You know, are you old? Are you young? Do you have veterans? Do you have guys that haven't been in that situation before? And this team this year, we had so many older players. It didn't have to push too many buttons, but – you know, every once in a while you have to do it. And uh, in baseball, we play so many games. We play 56 games. We're playing four and five games a week. So if you're on them all the time, they're going to turn your the volume down. They're only going to hear so much. You know, Kirby gets them once a week on the football field. So you can get after them once a week. But when you're playing four or five times a week, you just have to be strategic about it. And, yeah, I, I challenged them on Saturday night. Um, actually, you know, actually, I think it was Friday night because it was a Thursday, Friday, Saturday series, and it was Friday night after the game. I thought we played well on Thursday, we just got beat, but on Friday, I didn't think we competed well enough, so I really got on them, and it continued into Saturday. I mean, there's been times with teams that I get on them on Friday night, and then Saturday, I kind of feel bad, you know, I'm apologizing, trying to get them back. Hey, we're okay, we're okay, but uh, it continued into Saturday morning, into batting practice, into pregame just challenging them, trying to, you know, push a button to tick somebody off. And I thought they really responded. I thought maybe we played our best game of the year on that Saturday in Knoxville. And, and that propelled us into the postseason. Oh, man, it was. It, it was awesome. You guys did play lights out. And, and that was that was a great tennis. That, that Tennessee team, it really, maybe the best SEC team that I've seen in 25 years. I, mean, I think you got to go back to 97 LSU to find a team that, that dominated all these categories. I mean, when you guys played them, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're setting records for home runs. They got the number one uh, staff in the, in the, in the nation team ERA, their batting average is, you know, soaring. I mean, they're just, it wasn't like there was a weak spot in the lineup every time, even their pinch hitters coming up uh, you know, he's a 300 guy. So it was, it was, it was just a, a murderer's row. And I want to talk more about Tennessee later, but I, I got to get into a little inside baseball. You know, one of the interesting things, about baseball, and I know those that, that watch and understand it, is it's different from a retention standpoint, right? And, and Coach, I'll let you, uh, before I ask you about some of these players, I'll let you explain the process and how baseball players get drafted once and maybe they don't go and come back because it is different than other sports. Yeah, it certainly is. Our players can get drafted out of high school, and uh, they have that opportunity as 18-year-olds to go and play professional baseball. And I always you know, kind of use it, think about it. I, I can give them tuition and books and a professional team can give them a check with two commas in it. So they have a choice to make, you know, do I go play professional baseball, which all these kids have been dreaming about all their lives. And, you know, the Braves pick them or the Dodgers pick them or the Yankees pick them. Do I go and play right away or do I go to college and wait three years? And in general, it is three years. It's when you turn 21, when you're eligibly drafted again. So Cole Wilcox, a couple of years ago, when is a draft eligible sophomore because he turned 21 during his sophomore year. So it isn't three years like football where you have to be there for three and then get drafted in baseball. It's once you turn 21. So if you just happen for whatever reason to be held back one year and you got a really late birthday, you can be drafted as a freshman if you turn 21 as a freshman, but most kids do turn 21 in their junior year of college and then that's when they have that opportunity to get drafted again. We don't know if they're going to sign. We don't know if they're going to come back. And it makes it tricky when you don't know which of your high school kids. We've got 11 high school kids committed coming in here. All of them have a chance to be drafted. Uh, we feel like that we're going to get them all, but you never know. Some team may jump up there and give a kid a million dollars and really give them something to think about. And then all of a sudden we lose a kid that we were counting on to be in our rotation or to be our starting center fielder. One of those things can happen, and that's what makes our job so tricky. Or Texas A&M might recruit him. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. It was just too easy. 
Uh, and the other thing that's interesting about baseball is the scholarship numbers. You know, when we think about football, we think about basketball, everybody's got a full ride. The other thing that's interesting in baseball is how the scholarships are split. And once again, coach, an opportunity to educate the audience. How many guys on your roster versus how many scholarships do you really have to allocate and how do you split those up? Well, we have 11.7 scholarships. And the reason why it's 11.7 in 1988, it used to be at 13. And then they went across the board and cut men's scholarships and scholarship sports by 10%. So 10% of 13 is 1.3, which equals 11.7. So we got 11.7, only 27 players are allowed to be on scholarship. So 11.7 spread among 27 players and, you know, our roster this year could be up to 40. So now all of a sudden you've got 27 players on scholarship, but you've got 13 players out there in that dugout on that roster that are not on scholarship. And, uh, and there's a lot of guys that have played for us over the years that uh, were not on scholarship. We try to reward them the best we can. Uh, you know, maybe the next year we can put them on scholarship, but it's really difficult and again, we don't know who's going to show up and who's not going to show up. So when you're divvying out scholarships, you could have a big scholarship allocated to a player and all of a sudden he signs in the pro draft and then you kind of have to start over. So wow. it's tricky. It's not easy. I couldn't tell you what our roster is going to look like next year. The draft isn't until July 17th. So July 18th, we're going to have a pretty good idea. But as of right now, we're still waiting to see what happens in this pro draft. And then after the draft takes place and you find out who's going and who's not, do you kind of hit the reset button and is the scholarship allocation kind of on a year to year deal? I mean, gosh, this year I'm getting 0.6 of the scholarship next year. It might be 0.45. Is it, is it that sort of a, a deal, right? When you go through the scholarship list like that? It can change. It just depends on how it's written up from the beginning when they sign on, you know, is it year to year? Is it four years? Is it, you know, 25% one year and 50% the next year. So it all depends on how it's written up at the beginning. But what we try to do is if there's a player that maybe has a smaller scholarship or no scholarship, if we get money back in the draft and we get that spot back, then all of a sudden that player that maybe started last year that wasn't a scholarship player suddenly gets scholarship. So you see it all the time in football too. You know, someone gets rewarded with a scholarship. It's just because something opened up, something happened. So we try to do that the best that we can, but it's not fair. It just is what it is. It's 11.7 with 27 guys getting scholarships. Uh, it's been helped a little bit with, uh, you know, the Hope Scholarship and Zell Miller Scholarship in-state helps, but we don't have any out-of-state help. We don't have out-of-state tuition waivers, which a lot of schools have. If you look on rosters across college baseball, if you see a lot of kids that are not from that state, then that means that school has some type of out-of-state scholarship program to reduce that cost. And, and we don't have that at Georgia. It's a public Ivy institution. We don't have to try to, you know, give kids a deal to get in here, to go here, because everybody wants to go here. And it's such a good academic school. So that's why you see the majority of our players are in state for two reasons. Number one, we've got a great, great uh, talent base in Georgia, but also it's a whole lot cheaper to come in state than it is to be an out-of-state player. Do most of the SEC schools have an out-of-state tuition waiver? Most do. Yes, most do. Not all, but most do. And, and again, if you just look around rosters and you see schools with a lot, lot of out-of-state players or maybe a lot of junior college players, some, some teams have junior college scholarships that they can give. If you have a certain GPA coming out of a junior college, you get a better deal. So, you know, everyone has something for the most part to be able to get, you know, players a little, you make those scholarship dollars go a little bit further. But, you know, ours is in-state, so we get that in-state, but then out-of-state teams can come in and give those players that out-of-state tuition waiver, and it kind of nullifies the advantage that we have in-state with those guys. And, you know, it's, it's, it's never easy. It's never, uh, it's, it's never a simple solution in recruiting. You just got to go out there and find the right players that are the right fit for your program. Yeah. And so, I mean, really, it, you know, it, it's really not a level playing field in, in really many respects. I mean, to your point, you know, the University of Georgia has so many great things going academically that it has a lot of advantages other schools in that sense. But this out of state tuition waiver to me, I mean, this is this is this really kind of cancels out uh, being the in-state school, like you said. And, and so I under, I can understand it kind of reminds me a little bit of, of Notre Dame football 
and and uh, and how they had different academic standards, and and really it kind of led to the demise of Notre Dame football, quite frankly, because they weren't able to recruit from the same talent pool. In your case, you don't have the built-in advantages uh, that a lot of other programs do. I, I guess one of the questions I would ask, and I'm sure a lot of people wonder this, is we we hear so much about the NIL. And, and certainly most of the time we're talking about football or we're, we're talking about basketball or we're, we're seeing the guy at, uh, at Texas, you know, driving a Lamborghini, the running back, or we see the Porsche car up there at Kentucky. Um, and we see the collective. I know that in George's case, uh, the classic city collective is something that, you know, while Josh Brooks and, and Kirby Smart haven't necessarily signed off on that, they have signed off on the guy that runs it, Matt Hibbs, your former compliance guy. Will you get some relief from that? And is that collective going to be um, key or important, you know, for a sport like baseball or, or who knows, softball or other sports where they don't have the full scholarships? Well, certainly when you talk about, we call them equivalency sports, you know, sports that we have to give an equivalency of some type, a 25% or a 40%. So anything that you can do to bridge that gap of what that family has to pay to go to college is going to be helpful. And, the NIL, it's still, you know, there's still a lot of mystery to it. There's a lot of gray area. The, the rules, I don't know if we all know the rules. I mean, we've been educated on them. We talk about them, but I think we all see that there's a lot of things going on and we hear rumors all the time of some things that are going on. So, you know, the best thing that we can do is, is give our kids opportunities. That's what the collective's all about. Give our kids uh, the opportunity to be educated on what opportunities are out there for them. And yeah, there are going to be opportunities for other athletes besides football and basketball, but it's still in the infancy stage. We're still developing. Matt has done a great job. You know, he, he communicates with our players. And that's the biggest thing is to communicate that you understand what you can and cannot do and, uh, and take advantage of the opportunities that are out there that are legal. And, and that's where we are right now in that gray area, because there are some people who are just kind of defining legal as what we want to do. And no one has really been punished. There's no been, there's no slaps been thrown down by the NCAA yet on this NIL thing. And I don't know if it's going to happen or not. And, and I think we're all still kind of guessing of where it's going to go. But in the end, I, I hope it gets to a point where it can be a level playing field where everyone has opportunities and not just some certain schools are throwing out, you know, six-digit numbers at players to come play at their school and other teams can't do that. It's just, it's very confusing. We're in a gray area. I hope it settles down and I hope we figure out what direction we're going soon. Yeah, a lot of people may not know this, but university president Jerry Moorhead, who who really uh, had some rock star moments down there at the SEC spring meetings when he went on the Feinbaum show and and pretty much was cross-examined and, and questioned about every issue the NCAA's ever had. And and President Moorhead really took that on well and and really, I thought, stepped up uh, as, as a leader that college sports needs. And you might ask, well, wh why him? Well, he's currently in the role of the SEC president. Uh, he's on the NCAA Board of Governors and Board of Directors. And, and he's kind of been the guy sticking his neck out there talking about this because the president of the NCAA, of course, is is out in a year, kind of dead man walking. And it, it looks like Jerry Moorhead is uh, taking a leadership role. And so for the for coaches like Coach Strickland or Kirby or or, uh, or anyone else. I mean, you've got the guy that's leading the charge for uh, NIL compliance is your boss. And you're going to walk at Georgia, the finest line of any school out there. Now, the advantage is that, you know, Moorhead knows more about the uh, NIL than anyone else. And all you coaches are extremely well educated on it. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think you're working in quite as much of a gray area. Now, again, uh, I hope the audience that doesn't follow baseball closely forgives me. But again, I'm somebody that you know, really uh, became enamored with this baseball program. And one of the other interesting components, we talked about the draft a little bit earlier in the show and how that works. Well, you've got other guys like that are graduate students and are they coming back? They've got another year of eligibility. Are they coming back? Are they not coming back? I mean, you got a leadoff hitter in Ben Anderson. I think he's going to medical school. Eventually, he's a guy who is a grad student who has another year. We've got a guy in Connor Tate, uh, him and his brother Cole Tate from nearby Oconee County. They were you know, the rock star twins that pretty much hit in 500, it seemed, the last month. And they've never played a part except for one summer. Well, Cole's leaving. Is Connor going to go with him? Is he coming back? You've got the transfer from Florida, Corey Acton, another guy. It says senior on the roster, but I think he's got another year. Do we know about these guys and what they're going to do? Or when do we find all this out? 
Well, again, we go back to the draft. Connor Taylor, I just met with Connor today and, and, and talking about it. obviously he wants a chance to play professional baseball. And I can't believe he didn't get that opportunity last year. He had a great year and uh, then he didn't get drafted. He's a year older this year and uh, he had the same type of year. He put up the same numbers. So does he get that chance? I hope so. Uh, selfishly, we want him back, but uh, I do want him a chance to play professional baseball. So we'll see with Connor. I feel pretty good about Ben. You know, Ben is going to go to medical school. He's taken the MCAT once. He's going to take it again. I don't know why you take it again. <laughs> Put yourself through that. But but Benny just loves that stuff. And so he is uh, studying to take the MCAT once again. He will not start medical school until September of 2023. So he's got 16 months until he even has to worry about going to medical school. So just in that one year while he's waiting, we can – find a couple of biology and chemistry classes for him over there in the science building and, and keep him on campus and feel pretty good that Ben will be back. Corey Acton's going to come back uh, as our second baseman, you know, a guy like Jack Gowan, Jack Gowan can come back okay. for a fifth year. Shane Marshall can come back. You know, he's, Shane's been such a, you know, a, a great role player for us as, as a catcher, but he's going to have the opportunity to pitch. He's healthy. Uh, he's going to pitch a little bit for us too. Uh, so we've got about six guys that can come back and use that COVID year. And uh, most of them have made the decision. The biggest one that's up in the air, Jack Gallon still could get drafted and Connor Tate could still get drafted. But if they don't get selected or don't get selected where they want, they could come back for that fifth year for Jack and sixth year for Connor Tate. Wow. It's, it's exciting, uh, folks. I got to tell you, like I said, I, you know, Jack Gowan was amazing when I talked about that big win over uh, Tennessee on that. I get it was a Saturday because they started the series on a Thursday. But I mean, Gowan came in there and what did he throw, Coach? Three and two thirds inning, a shutout ball against this 178 uh, home run team. And um, you know, before we uh, I guess talk about you know Tennessee because it's amazing how Tennessee moved the needle. Maybe not for all the you know for some of the right reasons, for some of the wrong reasons. I mean, there was obviously uh, some curricular activity. I guess we might as well dive into that now. Because I remember talking to your players before the Tennessee series. And it, it kind of reminds me a lot of some of the football stadiums and, and some of the hostility that you hear out of the crowd and how they can have they can absolutely have an effect. They can absolutely uh, affect the other team, not only because the crowd is so loud and, and, and really almost vicious. They almost take pride in, in, in some of the things that are uh, verbally hurled out of the stadium. But but some of the other things, you know, the way a, a Tennessee player might might flip the bat or, or might uh, triumph around the, you know, the little gamesmanship, edgy little things that have a way of getting under an opponent's skin. And uh, Georgia baseball is not like that. Um, Tennessee was like that even before, you know, Tony V. I mean, you go back to Rod Delmonico years and Tennessee baseball, they don't mind telling you. They play with a little bit of an edge, man. And, uh, and your players said going into that series – I think the way Cole Tate was it is, is t put it was they play with a lot of personality, which was a nice, nice. What about your take on just the whole dynamic of everybody was watching? I don't want to say everybody was rooting against Tennessee, but I don't know that I've ever seen Notre Dame as a sympathetic figure in any sport. But it sure did seem like a lot of people wanted to see that. And that was almost a compliment to Tennessee. How did you kind of, you know, perceive and, and perspective that you would add on that? that whole dynamic of the whole Tennessee super regional blow up against Notre Dame. Well, obviously Tennessee had a great year and they're really, really talented. They were deep in every position on the mound with their batters and what, you know, offensively what they could do. And, and they do, I, I think that's a good way to put it that Cole Tate said they play with a lot of personality. And, you know, when you're playing that well, when you're that talented and you play with a flair, then you're going to get your detractors and you're going to get people when you're on top, people want you to lose. It's just the way it is. So, uh, you know, Notre Dame came in and played really well and, and found a way. And that's the great thing about baseball that anyone can beat anybody anytime. Uh, if you get hot and, and Notre Dame got hot, they got hot down in the regionals at Statesboro and they continue that through the super regional and they're still playing. So if you get hot at the right time, you can win and just hats off to Notre Dame. They went in there and got it done. Yeah, well, you talk about how good Tennessee was, and, and and yet I think out of the five SEC teams that made it to the Super Regionals, the Sweet 16 of baseball, I think they were the only one that didn't make it to the World Series. I mean, I'm looking at the brackets right now, Coach, 
And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's good news or bad news. I mean, I guess it's good news. Everybody wants to play the best kind of baseball in the country. And certainly in football, we know that's the SEC. And I don't think there's any argument. Uh, the same would be said in baseball. I, I see that uh, I see Texas A&M uh, is still going strong. I see Arkansas. I see Ole Miss. Uh, Auburn, I'm not sure what happened with them against Stanford earlier today. Um, but, you know, and, and then and then you got Texas and Oklahoma. Oh, by the way, they're going to be in the league in a couple of years. Uh, you know, my goodness, what does that say? And, and for you guys to go 500 in the SEC and people go, well, that doesn't sound very good. Well, take a look at who's in the SEC. You know, we're talking about four World Series teams here, um, sometimes six teams ranked in the top 15. Um, how do you try to compete uh, in a league like that, and, and what is the, the the positive negative of being in a in a in a league like that? Well, we sell the league. You know, when we're talking to recruits, we're selling Georgia, obviously, but we're also selling the league. This is where kids want to play. Uh, when you look at the pro draft every year, more players are taken out of the SEC than any other league. You look at the big leagues; there are more players in the SEC than any other league. So you want to play in this league. You want to play against the absolute best, and that's what you do when you come to the SEC. So. Yeah, it's unbelievably competitive every single weekend. It's 30 straight games of juggernaut opponents, and uh, you wouldn't want it any other way. It's, it's a pressure cooker. There's stress all over the place. But you know what? That's why these kids want to come play in the SEC, and, uh, and that's why they want to compete in this league. Well, one of the great things that, that's happened, I think, in the last couple of years, and uh, you know, obviously Mr. McGarity took care of the finances in a, in a, in a way that when COVID struck, Georgia was not one of these schools that – that had to lay people off or ask sports to take cuts and, and, and maybe a little bit more of a conservative approach, uh, you know, proved effective, you know, during our, our global pandemic. But now uh, Josh Brooks, a very aggressive young AD, young relative to other ADs at 41, 42 years old. And, and we know that Josh has a facilities plan, obviously uh, football at the top of the food chain, the engine that drives the revenue train. We saw that the recently, uh, uh, released plans for another 68.5 million going into Sanford Stadium, uh, a tennis facility that that once regularly hosted NCAA tournaments. A big part of of the Georgia uh, athletic culture has been uh, tennis. They're trying to get those facilities back, and and now we know that baseball is finally coached. And, and you've been in this nine years, and you've been very patient. I don't expect you to do any sort of complaining or or or, or anything like that. But the reality of it is is it has not been a level playing field where facilities are concerned. That's me saying that, not you, because there are some great things about Foley. It is intimate. It is small. It is beautiful. It is it is on campus and very convenient. Um, but at the same time, we're in an era now where some of these players, it seems like, um, you know, they want those sort of facilities. They want the new modern extended you know, batting cages, right? They want the pitching lab where they can get more information and more feedback and and I know we spoke a little bit earlier about uh, about this, but if you can just kind of review, I know we're in the the uh, you know the planning stages and what Georgia wants. I've heard Tennessee's looking at twenty six and a half million dollars worth of updates of facilities, and it's almost like keeping up with the Joneses. What what's on the wish list for Georgia baseball? What are some of the things that, that you think we might see in the next two or three years come your way? Well, I, I think first and foremost, Josh Brooks came out and said, Coach, what do we need to make our priority? He came to us. And the, the first thing we said is we want to need to make sure that our players are taken care of. So the player initiatives are number one. So we're talking about new batting cages, new pitching labs, new weight rooms, new nutrition centers, all those things. That's what we're talking about. And, and we're moving forward with that. We're looking at drawings. Uh, we've got an architect. We've got a builder. Uh, but, it, you know, everything is still – in the planning stage and uh, we are excited about it you know we're talking to recruits about it um we're having meetings about it but i think we're really going to pick up some momentum in the fall the board of trustees will look at all this stuff and you know hopefully everything just keeps going the pace that it's going but if we stay on schedule we're hoping to start construction this time next year when the season ends that we can start construction and and, and get what we need. And, and I know Josh has been great about it. He's been, you know, very, very supportive. He's talked about it from day one that we were going to do this. And, uh, you know, I think we would have already done this. We, we started to have the drawings coming out in 2020 when we had had, you know, the 18 and 19. We had great years. In 2020, we were rolling. And then the world came to a stop. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's like everybody else. We're probably two years behind from where we were going to be. But uh, I'm excited. 
with the progress that we're making with the talks and you know what we talk with the architects and the builders but uh, yeah we're excited at what's going to happen and uh, we're just going to see what's coming up next no doubt and coach you didn't say it but i will but that baseball team in 2020 was ranked number two in the nation and you did have a a college world series staff it was just it was one it was just one of the darndest things of all the years that it that something like that okay uh, before i let you go here's my last question for you you know you are a college world series coach you took kent state there had great success and you've stuck with georgia nine years and i know there's been other opportunities i know you don't advertise that uh you've been at a disadvantage uh with your facilities in the toughest league and yet you've stuck around georgia you've stayed with this program and, and what has kept you at georgia even though you've been in a difficult uh, situa a challenging situation, certainly. Um, what has kept you at the University of Georgia these nine years? Well, it's, it's never been a question for me. This is the only place that, that we want to be. And I say we, it's, it's my wife, it's my kids, it's our coaching staff. This is the best college town in America. Uh, we absolutely love Athens, Georgia. Uh, we've never really entertained anything else. If you've ever heard, hey, you know, the coach might go there, it's, it's not true. Just because you know, people like to talk, people like to post rumors, but uh, there's ever never been a thought of uh, of going anywhere. And I'll just share a little little joke. You know, there's there's rumors about Ohio State. You know, I was born in Ohio, and I coached at Kent State, and Ohio State had an opening. So because my birth certificate says Ohio on it, all of a sudden, you know, I'm I'm in that mix for that job, and uh, I, I just I'm honored to say I, I just got uh, inducted into the Kent State Hall of Fame. And I just found that out the other day. So my wife was on the road with my son. So I just thought I'd have some fun with her. And I sent her the text message. Hey, by the way, I've got some news, dot, dot, dot. We're going back to Ohio. <laughs> and I should have checked the Life 360. She was driving. I shouldn't have sent it while she was driving. But I guess she, I guess she stopped at a light and typed out no with 5,000 O's in it. And, uh, and I asked my son, I go, what did your mom say? She goes, she was freaking out. Yeah. And uh, I said, no, we're going for a weekend next fall. We're going into the Hall of Fame. So uh, it was never going to happen. This is where we want to be. We love Athens, Georgia. We love the University of Georgia. And, uh, you know, I, I've said it before. If I had an agent, I don't have one. He'd be mad at me for saying that because that's where, you know, coaches sometimes aren't in the business of doing that. We, sometimes we're always negotiating the next deal. And you know what? I love it here. I hope Josh Brooks loves me being his coach and uh, I want to be here as long as he'll have me. No doubt. Coach, I, I really appreciate it. Now I want to take a moment. We go into our halftime break and recognize our sponsor Ingalls, just like coach Strickland dedicated there for us, uh, motivated to be a part of our lives and, and, and do all they can to service. And they did that during the pandemic. And certainly they do that for us every day. Let's take a moment uh, for our sponsor Ingalls. It's in our hearts to feel for you There's been ups and downs, turnarounds There's good days and some bad But we stand together for worse and for better We'll always have your back open arms, heart to heart, hand in hand Community Welcome back to the program. Mike Griffith here and uh, really appreciated uh, Coach Strickland joining us. A uh, really good segment with him and certainly, um, you know, what Georgia baseball did this year. A lot of excitement, a lot of fun. And uh, and I think there's a really positive future ahead uh, for the Georgia Bulldogs in baseball. And if you haven't been to Foley Field, I think that's a place that you need to check out. Uh, I think it's uh, an experience that I think your family will enjoy. I know they've recently do it started uh, some alcohol sales there, but but honestly, I didn't notice any difference in in terms of the the friendliness or anything of the stadium. I think everything is really well run, uh, really well managed. I just think it's a nice afternoon. And like Coach Strickland said, and 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 now I've lived here four years, and I'm a little biased. I do think he's right um, when you think about the college town and the environment and the places you can go eat and, and walk around downtown and go into the shops and certainly uh, Foley Field in the spring. Uh, in early summer, it's a, it's a really good place to go watch a ball game and, and hang out. And it's certainly a, a beautiful walkable campus at Georgia. So I know Georgia fans are, are all excited and eager for Georgia baseball to be one of those teams in the College World Series again. I think it happened in 2008. I think that Josh Brooks has a lot of confidence in Coach Strickland. And again, hopefully you got a sense of who Scott Strickland is 
and why there's so much confidence in Georgia baseball and in Scott. Um, he, he's just a very likable, charismatic guy, and I can tell you watching the way the players interact with him, very positive. They have had some bad luck. There's no doubt about it. You're not going to hear him cry or complain about it. But, you know, you lose your number two and number three pitcher at the start of the year. Your ace, you know, has a, a bizarre forearm injury. Not the same. I mean, it was just tough. And I didn't even I didn't ask him about the the, uh, the devastating, heartbreaking loss to North Carolina in the regional where the guy literally steals a home run from an outgoing senior in his last game. It was really one of the saddest and toughest things I'd ever seen in, in, a, in a sporting event. And that's why I didn't go there with Coach Strickland, because he uh, he was very emotional after that game. Um, he loved that team and that loss, you know, it's going to stick with, it, it's going to motivate. Uh, you know, I, I saw it last year when I thought they were wrongly left out of the NCAA tournament. Uh, Coach Strickland was motivated. He said that is not going to happen next year. And he talked about a higher level of ball. And we saw that. And we saw Georgia uh, with some very impressive um, success. Sweeping Florida was a, was a highlight and certainly beating Tennessee and Knoxville, uh, a really, really good Tennessee team. So uh, the busyness of the last week, and and I know that a lot of you keep up with the recruit, recruiting, and uh, you've seen uh, Jeff Centel with a lot of stories on Dog Nation. Uh, four recruits that have committed in the last week. You saw the kicker Peyton Woodring uh, from Lafayette, Louisiana. Just uh, it seemed like a few days after I saw a picture of him with Nick Saban, and people talking about him going to Alabama. All of a sudden, he's a Georgia commit. I said, all right, well, that didn't last too long. You saw Josh Miller. Uh, he committed on the 13th, the three-star linebacker in state, um, or excuse me, from uh, Virginia, uh, a guy that obviously Georgia very high on. Uh, he's committed in the last week. Uh, C.J. Allen, uh, the commit tonight, I don't know if you're on it, but C.J. Allen currently rated a, a three-star uh, by, I think, in the um, in some of the ratings. But this is a guy whose rankings are climbing. Obviously, a guy George is very high on, 6'1", 217, in-state. Barnesville, Georgia, um, you know, Kirby doesn't miss on these guys, you know, and, and he doesn't look at stars. In fact, it kind of works the other way around if we're going to be honest about it. Once a kid gets a Georgia offer or a Bama offer, um, I think that that's kind of the proof in the pudding. Uh, you know, these coaches are getting paid millions of dollars to assess talent. And really, that's what separates Kirby, I believe, uh, is his ability to recognize talent. Uh, certainly, they develop it at Georgia, but they have so much talent coming in. Uh, you know, some guys you can't miss, right? A.J. Harris, we saw that, number 20 recruit in the country, Phoenix City, Alabama, cornerback. I mean, and you might ask yourself, you know, when you look at the last recruiting class that Georgia had, what was there, four, five-star DBs in that class? I don't think they'd ever had that many. Uh, the richest DB class ever, and certainly uh, Georgia needs it going into this year. So much competition. Why would another great guy come? Because they understand that competition is not a bad thing. And they've got confidence in themselves. I mean, think about uh, Eric Stokes actually redshirted his first year at Georgia. Eric Stokes was actually the lowest rated guy, the lowest rated position player in that Georgia signing class. And he comes out, he ends up being a first round pick, right? Because every day he's going competing shoulder to shoulder with other talented players, getting better, right? going through the strength and conditioning program. So recruiting the five stars is great because you get a lot of guys coming in with talent, but it also, I believe, kind of, what do they say, a rising tide raises all ships. I think that level of competition, especially in the defensive backfield, and I think if, you know, Kirby recognizes that there are going to be transfers, there are there is going to be attrition. I mean, there have been 10 DBs that have transferred out of Georgia in the last three years plus whatever NFL attrition. I remember, what was it, coming out of last season, I think there were nine guys that left either through the draft or through the transfer portal. Georgia had to completely reload in the secondary. And, and even now, I wrote a story today. I think the secondary this year, I don't think the secondary numbers are going to be as good as they were a year ago. And a lot of people are like, oh, man, you know, you got Keely Ringo coming back. You got Christopher Smith coming back. You got William Poole. You got Dan Jackson. You got some rising talent. And you do. But, wow, Lewisine, first-round NFL draft pick, was such a big factor. Darian Kendrick, the MVP of the Orange Bowl, your best cover guy, a guy that had played in national title games, the Clemson transfer, right? Now you plug in Tyke Smith. So, you know, you could make the argument – 
that, you know, well, Keeley's going to be that much better with the year behind him. Chris Smith, a, another healthy year, a, a team leader with a lot of experience. And I like Chris Smith as well. Um, other players, you know, Dylan Everett, I thought he looked outstanding in the G-Day game. Uh, Nyland Green, you know, is this the year that, that Nyland Green lives up to, to the recruiting rankings? I don't know. There is a good pool of talent. None of that is why I would say um, – None of that is why I would say that they're not going to be as good. The reason they're not going to be as good is because the front seven loses so much. And when you've got a front seven like Georgia had last year, and we're talking legendary. I mean, we're, you know, we throw greatness around so easily. Oh, they're great. They're great. They're Well, really there's not that many great. No, what we saw last year, you have to understand was historic. All right. You're not going to see that happen again for 25 years. You're not going to see another deep, mark my words, not, not in the SEC, not where there's this level of competition. You are not going to see a defense hold teams to an average of 6.9, 6.9 points per game in a regular season. Not going to happen. All right. That was remarkable. We had never seen a program produce five first round picks off of one defense. That had never happened. And all the years of the end, all the great Alabama teams, all the Ohio States, uh, LSU, nobody had ever had five defensive players off of one team go in the first round. It's not going to happen again for a couple of reasons. One, the NIL and the transfer portal. Most of these guys, had the NIL been around two years ago, three years ago, I'm not sure Quay Walker stays until his senior year. Quay Walker, first-round draft pick, did not start until his senior year. Even crazier, Trayvon Walker, the number one overall pick in the NFL draft, did not start until his junior year. Think about this. Can you think of another number one overall draft pick that didn't start until their third year to school? Georgia was able to stockpile so much because the transfer rule used to be you had to get a waiver or you would have to sit out a full year. Well, that, that's gone. And not only can you just transfer and go somewhere else right away, but other schools can pay you money to do it. This NIL that we talked about with Coach Strickland, and I thought Coach Strickland did an incredible job explaining all the, the nuances of the baseball rules. I hope you enjoyed that because it is complicated. It's different. If you didn't see it, go back and watch it because it's very different in baseball and it's not something that's easy to wrap your brain around, but coach Strickland, obviously doing a great job explaining that. But even coach Strickland said is, is intellectual and articulate and is studied up as he is on the rules. Even at, at UGA where Jerry Moorhead is, is really a, a pioneer and a leader among administrators in combating uh, you know, programs that are going astray uh, of NIL rules, there's still some gray areas, right? Now I see a, a good comment from Antoine Simpson about UGA building their defense, and they will be great, but they don't have the championship depth. They don't have five first-round picks on this year's defense. They don't have four first-round picks in their front seven. You essentially now Jalen Carter is fantastic. And, and I would be shocked if he didn't go in the top 10 of the draft, if not in the top five. I mean, he is he's unbelievable. He's explosive. And Zion Logue looked very good to me in the G Day game. And all the reports we heard of Zion Logue were very positive. So there's two guys right there that are very strong, but there's no Jordan Davis. There's no Devontae White. Nolan Smith is back. But is Nolan Smith the number one overall pick like Trayvon Walker? I, I don't think so. OK, you're losing so much. So and your your linebacker cores. I mean, we didn't even talk about Channing Tindell. I mean, here's a guy that didn't start at all. And he's a third round pick. I mean, think about, it. you know, Nicobe Dean, Channing Tindell, uh, Quay Walker. I, holy cow. Three NFL linebackers psh, gone. I like Jamon Dumas Johnson. He looked good when he was in there. But there's a lot of question marks and a lot of inexperienced guys that are going to be plugged in. Are they talented? Oh, goodness, yes. And to Antoine's point, I do think this grows into a good defense. But right out of the gate, you can't you can't expect to play at that historically dominant 6.9 points per game level that we hadn't seen in college football since 1986 Oklahoma, right? Now, on top of all of that, 
on top of the fact that, of course, George is going to lose historically dominant defense. Look at your opponents this year. Last year, played a lot of first-year quarterbacks. This year, you're playing at least one, two, three, four quarterbacks that are ranked in the top 15 of the quarterbacks in the country among NFL projections, and probably five. Bryce Young is who you're going to have to go through, more than likely, provided Bryce stays healthy. Alabama and Bryce Young is who George is going to have to go through again. And when Bryce Young had his receivers, they put 41 points on Georgia, actually 34, because some of that a touchdown was a pick six. But still, uh, Alabama has had a lot of success against Georgia defense, even in 2020. And that was a great defense in 2020 with a first round pick in Eric Stokes. And what was Tyson Campbell, the second pick of the second round? And they lit George up like a Christmas tree in Tuscaloosa and beat him 41-24 there. And that was a great defense that had Jordan Davis and Devontae Wyatt and N'Kobe Dean and Quay Walker, right? Along with, I think, Monty. Was Monty on that defense still? I can't remember if Monty was still on the defense. But that was a loaded defense, too. My point is this. Uh, so you go, okay, all right, we know about Alabama. We'll worry about Alabama when you get to – okay, well, Will Levis, the Kentucky quarterback, is also a projected first-round pick. He's not a first – year quarterback in a new scheme anymore okay he's a second year quarterback and by the way that game in lexington kentucky on november 19th it can get kind of chilly there anthony richardson we watched georgia just blow this guy up uh at the end of the first half i mean that's a three to zero game down there in jacksonville three minutes left in the first half last year that's a close game georgia fans biting their you know the you know is there going to be you know roster change you know we're looking holy cow what's going on three to zero with three minutes left and then the defense just breaks through and swarms Anthony Richardson, who the Florida fans, you know, talked about like he was the Michael Jordan of college football because of his athleticism. Well, guess what? NFL guys like him too. And, and Anthony Richardson is is ranked number five by ESPN among NFL prospects. Year year two for Anthony Richardson with a lot of experience, a lot of talent. Don't know how Billy Napier is going to use him. Not really sure what we're going to see, but that's another talented core. Hendon Hooker. Trivia question, who led the SEC in passing efficiency last year? It was Hendon Hooker, and he wasn't even the starter at the beginning of the year. Uh, Tennessee set scoring records, Josh Heupel year one. They had lost 44 players. All right, Georgia's lost 11 by comparison this offseason. Tennessee lost 44 players before last year. That's unbelievable. On 44 players, and, and they still won, what, six, seven games? And – set scoring records. So this Tennessee offense, uh, it's dangerous, right? Now they do play in Sanford stadium. I don't think they're going to beat Georgia just to be clear, but I think they're a dangerous team and Hendon hooker. Uh, he's a legit quarterback, you know, like Stetson. I think he's 24 years old, um, six, four, two, 18, uh, great mobility. Uh, Georgia did a great job on him last year, but everybody else, he just, he just killed. I think he had what 31 touchdowns, maybe three picks all year, something stupid like that. And, and don't forget Spencer Rattler. You know, last year, going into the season, um, you know, Spencer Rattler and JT Daniels were the two uh, Heisman leaders. I think JT was the Heisman leader after SEC Media Days. I think Rattler, who was then at Oklahoma, uh, was the favorite once, you know, the season, you know, got in a week. Uh, but then things didn't work out for him. So now Spencer Rattler, you know, is taking his show and he's at South Carolina. And what is that, week three? Week three, you got to play Spencer Rattler in South Carolina. Now, it, it, can the Gamecocks beat you in Columbia? I don't think so. But that's more of a threat, right? And, oh, by the way, Bo Nix in the open, a lot of people said, oh, you never had a problem with Bo Nix before. Well, that's not true. Uh, in 20, what was it, 2019, yeah, 2019, uh, Georgia's winning that game 21-0 going to the fourth quarter. Bo Nix, they put up 14 points, and they're driving into Georgia territory for a tying touchdown when Trayvon Walker sacks Bo Nix. And, and Bo Nix is back with that coordinator. That guy is with Lanning now. And uh, in 2020, Auburn had four new starters on the offensive line, and, and Georgia swarmed Bo Nix, and so nobody was going to look good. Joe Montana wasn't going to do anything behind that offensive line against Georgia in 2020. And then 2021, I don't – I mean, he – their best receiver was Demetrius Robertson. No offense to D-Rob, but he wasn't even a starter at Georgia. So he didn't have any targets. Now, Oregon has all of their offensive line starters back. I think that bodes well for the Ducks. Uh, I don't know that they're going to stop Georgia, though, because I think Georgia's going to be able to steamroll them with their offensive line and, and Kenny McIntosh and Kendall Milton. 
But point is, Bo Nix, I think, will have some success. And this is a guy that Kirby genuinely respects and is concerned about because Bo Nix can make some plays. Maybe not the most accurate thrower, but he can buy time with his legs. And in terms of GPS numbers, he's a fantastic athlete. Uh, Will Rogers is not on that list of top NFL prospects because he's only uh, a sophomore, right? Will Rogers at Mississippi State led the SEC and was fourth in the nation with 364 yards per game. You've got to play in Starkville on November 12th. And before you start dogging Mike Leach, I remember the last time Mississippi State played Georgia and you needed 400 yards passing to beat them in Sanford Stadium because you couldn't run the football. I think you had nine yards rushing against Mississippi State. So, And this is a good – I think this could be a sneaky good Mississippi State team. I really do. I don't know what you're going to get by that stage of the season because they don't have the depth like a program like Georgia. Um, so where are they going to be at from an injury standpoint? I don't know. But when I look at dangerous games – First of all, any road game in the SEC outside of Vanderbilt is dangerous. We've seen it happen before. It's tough to play under the lights on the road. You don't know when the game's slotted. You don't know the situation of your team, their team, who's hot, who's not. But the point is this. Georgia is playing teams with much better quarterback situations than they were a year ago. And conversely, your front seven is not nearly as experienced or salty is last year's historic, not great, historic team. Your secondary is not going to be in as favorable down and distance situations. Teams will be one-dimensional, but they won't be as one-dimensional, right? It's going to be much tougher on your secondary this year than it was last year. And many times Christopher Smith or Lewisine would tell us in those interviews, we're not as good as you think we are. I mean, they would literally say that. They would say, "Guy, we got to go to the lab. We got a lot of things to fix after last week's game, you know." And you've got some great teachers, obviously Kirby, obviously Will Muschamp, uh, Fran Brown is a guy these recruits clearly love. You see the job he's doing getting these players in here. Um, this a lot of people very excited about Fran Brown being on the staff, proven coach out of Rutgers. He's coached up a lot of great players. Don't let that Rutgers uh, bio fool you. This this is a legit big time college football coach, and George is very fortunate to have him. And these players are going to develop quickly, but they're going to be asked to do more because they're not going to have the same pressure. They're not going to have the same down and distance situations, advantages, uh, field position advantages without uh, Jake Camarda. I do think the Georgia offense is going to score more points, but I think opponents are going to score uh, more points too. You guys heard David Pollock said that he thought this Georgia defense would give up 10 points more than they did a year ago. That's kind of eye-popping, and then you go, oh, yeah, they only gave up 6.9. So that's 16.9 and still puts you in the top five of the nation. I still think they're going to be good, but I think the secondary uh, exposed is probably too strong of a word, but I think they'll be challenged more than they were a year ago. want to look at some of your questions, comments. Appreciate you guys uh, sticking around. Uh, I see Miriam Corbin is telling us Mississippi State doesn't have any defense. Uh, I didn't think they had defense last time. Uh, and they held Georgia to nine yards uh, rushing, and, and JT had to throw for 401 to beat him by a touchdown here during the COVID year. So I, I just don't know what's going to happen. I, I, I will say this. Uh, I've been to Starkville, I want to say, two or three times over the course of my career covering games. Um, I think back when I covered Alabama, actually, yes, when I covered Alabama and Auburn, um, I'm not sure if Auburn played there. I know Alabama played there, and I know I went there with Tennessee. I'll just tell you, that is a tough place to play. You're, you're, you're saying, wait a minute, it's not that big. You, you mentioned the cowbells, but it's just kind of out there, right? The, the saying is, it's not the end of the world, but you can see the end of the world from there, right? I mean, it is very, very remote. And sometimes that can you know freak kids out a little bit. Usually you, you know, get off the bus and – you know, you, you go through the major city, all the bright lights here. This place, you're like, you feel like you're out in the middle of a uh, of a cow pasture or something. And and, and don't get me wrong, the, the Mississippi State campus is very nice. The architecture is nice. It's clean. Starkville, a nice, you know, quaint little place. But when I say it's out in the middle of nowhere, it is out in the middle of nowhere. I think they fly into the, maybe the, the Golden Triangle Airport, it's called, in, in, in Columbus. It is as it's, it is, is remote as it gets. Uh, in the SEC and, and, and maybe I'm trying to think of power five conference, very remote, very uh, unique place there. Um, 
I saw the goalposts come down there. Uh, 1997, uh, they beat Alabama. Excuse me, 96, they beat Alabama, and the goalposts came down. Um, so I, I have, I, and it can get rowdy. And and even though the fans, I don't know what capacity, I want to say 65, 75,000, not nearly, not as big as some, but it gets very, very loud. So I would just say, you know, it, maybe Georgia goes down there and puts 28-0 up in the first quarter and, and it's a, a, a an easy game. But if that game was close, that would not surprise me. Um, that would not surprise me if that turned out to be a close game. That's, that's one of those games you kind of circle and go, okay, careful. This you just don't know. It's not a place you're used to going. Um, Kirby's been there a few times. Alabama had a lot of success, but Georgia has not been there. Uh, I see Jeff Horton talking about the offense being way better. Um, and, and Jeff is is like most people. Yeah, take 16 points all day long. I mean, uh, I want to say Clemson was second in the nation in scoring defense. And I think they gave up around 15 or 16 points. Um, somebody can check me on that. Uh, if they go to uh, NCAA.org, you can see the stats there. But uh, 16 points. Yeah, as far as the offense, you know, here's what I would say about that. I do think it'll be better. I think the running game is going to be markedly better. And and I've been saying this for a couple of years, and you guys know this. I, I think that Kenny McIntosh and Kendall Milton um, have a bigger ceiling uh, you know, than, than maybe, you know, other people that we've seen here. I, I think these are guys that could go in line with the, with, with the greats. I think, I think they're that good. I think they're that special. I think the offensive line is going to be better. Um, and, and that's saying a lot because obviously Jamari Sellier and Justin Schaefer, both uh, NF, six round NFL draft picks, right? So you're replacing two NFL players and I'm saying you're going to get better. I think Broderick Jones is an incredible talent. I think Cedric Van Pran is, is a great leader. I think he does a great job at center. You've got so many guards lined up. It's amazing if Tate Ratlitch gets back in time for the opener from the foot injury. I mean, that was your best run blocker last year, and you lost him on the opening series. So, you know, if Ratlitch is back, but even if he's not back, I mean, my goodness, Warren Erickson, uh, you know, a team captain, uh, a guy that's very versatile, can play center or guard. Uh, you know, we, we know about him. Uh, I mean, just body after body. After body, Warren McClendon at right tackle, a three-year starter, former freshman All-American. You know, you wonder, does Amarius Mims break in uh, at some point, somewhere? I mean, just so much talent and power in the trenches. And then, again, Kenny and Kendall, both, I believe, more powerful backs than you've had. I think both with better vision. Kendall, a guy that has changed his body. Uh, I, I'm impressed with the way he – I think he improved his pass catching um, Kenny, a guy with, with incredible cutback. You haven't had a cutback runner like this since DeAndre Swift. Um, and, and then, of course, Todd Munkin, you know, operating the controls. I mean, my goodness, you know, Kenny and Kendall, I think you're going to see a lot of throws to the backs. I think you're going to see defenses pay a lot of attention to Brock Bowers. Obviously, Eric Gilbert is a huge matchup problem for people, not to mention Darnell Washington. Could we see some three tight end formations? And, oh, by the way, the perimeter receivers are pretty good. You lost your meat, Burton, and he's really good. Don't kid yourself. But I like the way Lad McConkey's come on. A.D. Mitchell, uh, a talented perimeter threat as well. Um, and and Kiaris Jackson, a, a veteran who really had a good vibe with Stetson going a couple years ago uh, before Stetson got hurt uh, against Florida. So you've got a, a lot of weapons. They're going to be hard to, to cover. Um, and I do think that they will be better. But I also think it will be harder on them because I don't think the defense will be as good. I don't think the field position battles will be as dominant, not just because the defense isn't as good, but Jake Camardo was fantastic. I, I'll tell you what, you know, when you start talking about Georgia football players that could one day be in the College Football Hall of Fame, um, I don't know that it's that crazy to say Jake Camardo. Um, you know, Jordan Davis, to me, is the, is the first guy that goes in off of last year's team. I think Jordan was fantastic. Excuse me for a second. I need to plug in this uh, – Plug came loose. I think Jordan Davis is the first guy that goes into the College Football Hall of Fame off last year's team. I think Nicobe Dean is a Butkus Award winner. Is probably the second guy. I think the fact that Trayvon Walker was a first round overall NFL draft pick makes it possible. Um, he 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 wouldn't even all SEC. I don't think at the end of the year. Um, so I I would say Trayvon is probably a borderline College Football Hall of Famer off of last year's team. Um, thinking of other players off of last year's team that we'll see in the college football hall of fame someday. Uh, don't think George Pickens did quite enough. He was certainly a talent. Brock Bowers, right? 
certainly Brock Bowers, uh, you know, all you know, freshman of the year, all all American, um, Georgia records. Um, yeah, Brock Bowers for sure. Uh, Jalen Carter. Let's see what he does this year. Possibly possible that Jalen Carter, you know, and, and you go back and look at the, the players off championship teams and. And those are the guys that get in the College Football Hall of Fame. There's been other great Georgia players, no doubt about it, but you don't see a large amount of players off of one team unless they won a national title. And typically, you know, we're talking three or four guys. So if you're talking about three or four guys off of last year's team, ultimately going in the College Football Hall of Fame, those are some of the names I would rattle off. So uh, interesting conversation. Good question there. Appreciated that. Um, I see uh, Joel Moody says they're averaging 40 and giving up 15, uh, says they're going to beat everybody by double digits the entire regular season. Right now, that Vegas would agree with you, but there's always that one Georgia game, right? There's always that one game. To see. And remember now, you, you know, it's been this way for Georgia, I think, for a while in the East, but you're getting everybody's best punch, right? You're the national champions. And even though Kirby makes it very clear, not the defending national champion, that was last year's team, the reigning national champion. You're getting everybody's best punch. Every fan base is excited to play and see. You know, baseball is funny on this. You know, those Tennessee fans packed it out. They wanted to see Tennessee beat Georgia in something. And they did the first two nights before Georgia beat them 8-3 to three in that final game. So it's uh, going to be really interesting to watch how this Todd Munkin offense operates. There is one, there is one thing that kind of works against Georgia. Actually, two things that work against Georgia with the schedule. And the first thing that works against Georgia with the schedule is that you open with Oregon and Dan Lanning and Dan Lanning is going to have the blueprint on how to play the Georgia offense. And those other defensive coordinators, every opponent that Georgia has on the schedule is going to look at that Oregon tape and they're going to watch and see what Dan Lanning and the Ducks prioritize. Now, some of that is matchup and some of that has to do with the talent that Dan has and how he feels like it matches up with the talent that he knows quite well at Georgia but you are going to see teams go to school. That is a huge disadvantage in my mind that you open with Oregon. Um, and then the third game of the season, something to think about, South Carolina has hired Freddie Kitchens, former Alabama quarterback, former Cleveland Browns head coach. Who was Freddie Kitchens' offensive coordinator in Cleveland? Answer, Todd Munkin. Now, understand this. Todd Munkin did not call the plays in Cleveland. That was a point of contention. Todd Munkin publicly was critical of Freddie Kitchens. Uh, that's a no-no. Um, and there will be some animosity that week when they play South Carolina. Make no mistake about it. And Freddie Kitchens with some knowledge uh, and some inside knowledge on Todd Munkin. That's the third game of the year. So very interesting uh, plots within the games, within the games. It's it's exciting. It's coming up. I can't wait. You know, we're only, let's see, one, two, three, what are we, four weeks away from the SEC media days. They're in Atlanta this year at the College Football Hall of Fame. Very excited to be going there um, and, and providing you guys coverage. I love going to the SEC media days. I'll be there all four days. We will find all sorts of storylines, people talking about Georgia football, things about the Georgia program. Georgia will be the story that week. You can bet that Lane Kiffin will do and say some silly things just like he did yesterday. I don't know if you guys saw that. That story I did on Lane Kiffin trolling Kirby Smart, you know, Lane's the guy you just roll your eyes and go, what next out of Lane Kiffin? He's always trying to get under people. He will do something and say something. There will be more talk about Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher and the historic blow up they had. People are not going to let that go. Obviously, those teams meet this year. It's turned into one of the games of the year. That will be going on there. They'll be asked about it yet again, even though they were asked about it at the SEC spring meetings in Destin that we were at. They'll be asked about it again there. The clips will be played. More NIL talk. Um, but it'll be interesting to see who Kirby brings. Uh, which three players would you bring if you were Kirby Smart? And I recently asked that question. Um, I think we're going to have a cover four on it. And um, Jeff does those, does a great job with those. Those are really exciting to cover four stories. I don't know if you've seen them. There are a lot. If you haven't seen them, you need to see them. Um, but I said, what, what player, what's the one player that Kirby absolutely positively has to bring to the uh, SEC media days? And my answer is Stetson Bennett. Everybody wants to know more about Stetson Bennett. And, and I think Stetson has an interesting story to tell. And I think he's the guy that Kirby's got to bring and put on that podium 
Um, you know, the, the MVP of the college football championship game, by the way, recently, uh, you know, today news that, that Stetson will be among the 44 or 45 quarterbacks that will be at the Manning passing Academy. So uh, kudos and congrats to Stet. That's going to be great for him and great for Georgia to have that representation down there. Uh, but I think you got to bring Stetson Bennett. I, I think you got to bring Jalen Carter. Jalen is not um, comfortable or was not comfortable in front of speaking in front of the crowd, but he did it this spring. He was sweating, but he did a fantastic job. He answered the questions. He kept his composure. I was proud of him and for him because it was not, you could tell it wasn't natural for Jalen to be speaking in, in public. And he put himself out there because I think he recognizes that part of having a brand now and part of being a bona fide superstar, which he has that sort of talent is the ability to speak in public. He saw how Jordan Davis handled himself. Certainly Devontae Wyatt put on a great show at the combine. All the dogs did an unbelievable job at the NFL combine. You can still see that on our Facebook page, by the way, if you go under videos um, or on our YouTube page, hopefully you guys are all subscribed to the dog nation YouTube page. My final request tonight, if you could share this video on Facebook, uh, that would be great. Uh, the shares help us out a lot. Uh, obviously, we're building our brand and kind of circulating the Georgia news to some people that that may not ordinarily see it. Um, you know, good information. There's a great value to that. I think what you saw with Scott Strickland, the first half of the show, uh, I think you can get a lot out of that. Good. Uh, I learned from it. I, I learn every time I, I talk with Scott Strickland and certainly our conversation, the second half of the show, um, you know, these four fantastic recruits that George has managed to land in the last week. They've, they've landed four guys. Obviously, uh, you know, Kirby's still dialed in and recruiting, even with the NIL. A lot of momentum for Georgia. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Mike Griffith 32 Put a lot of my stories up there, a lot of content. or retweet some interesting things. Uh, tomorrow night, Connor and coverage. Uh, Wednesday night, Centel's Intel. And, of course, every day, 10 o'clock, Dog Nation Daily with Brandon Adams and my wonderful producer, Michael Carvel. Uh, that's going to do it for me. I want you guys to have a safe and happy week. And thanks for joining me tonight on the Ingles on the Beach show.